Hello and welcome to EMS Research with Professor Bram, where we talk about research-related issues that matter to those who work in emergency medical services. Today, we'll be talking about hypoglycemia. Welcome to EMS Research Vlog and Podcast from the studio here in Houston, Texas. I'm your host, Bram Duffy. I'm a research fellow with the Institute for Social Innovation at Fielding Graduate University. I also have an appointment as an assistant professor of communication at Kennesaw State University. I'm actually doing a research study right now that's open for first responders. And so if you don't mind being interviewed by me, I want to encourage you to go by my website and fill out the form. I'll talk about it near the end of the show, but the website is professorbram.com. So it's professorbram.com. The other thing is, before we get started, I want to mention that I've written two books on communication, and the most recent book has been just recently released called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. So you can find a link below, or for sure hang out at the end, and I'll tell you more about the book. Today, I am really excited because I'm here to introduce a, a guest his name is Eric Chase, and there's a lot of cool stuff to tell you about him. So please welcome Eric. He's a seasoned paramedic with sort of a humorous twist because since 2005, he's been part of the EMS community doing all of these roles from paramedic, fire paramedic, flight paramedic, field training officer, clinical services manager. And he's also been in law enforcement from 91 to 2003. So uh, a long career there. All that stuff has really equipped him with a unique blend of experience. And so today he takes these rich experiences into classrooms and training stuff for various first responders. And he also has a background as a, a comedian. So he does do some comedy add-ins to his training. And so I am just really excited to be here with Eric today. So Eric, is there anything I missed about uh, that folks need to know about you? First of all, thank you very much. It always seems very uh, more illustrious to hear someone read that when, when we're talking about lowly old me over here and, and the experiences that I've had the opportunity to have. What I find is interesting is as, as that kind of comedian that you talked about and using improv, I am not very funny, <laughs> but we do utilize that role of play in order to get the people, the right brain, left brain integration for people to start to see and feel. And, and when we're using the full body to connect and engage with one another and utilizing our mirror neurons to incorporate that engagement, learning can really happen. So we can really drive that knowledge and skill gap and narrow it when we're using improvisational techniques and the applied improvisation. The one other really cool thing, and I know my wife's happy about this, is that uh, the last three or four years I've been studying pre-med courses, physiology, chemistry, biochem, organic chem, so on and so forth, um, because I'm matriculating to uh, RN, and I'm also currently finishing microbiology this semester and started my nursing program uh, this semester. So I'll have an Associates of Art and Science by December of next year. So I like to stay busy, if you will, and, I, and I'm kind of for, uh, forging my path ahead um, and, and going to maintain my paramedic license as well. Well, good for you because, yeah, we need 
everybody to keep continuing and growing and to know about your illustrious career already and then to add on you're going to do more school that's uh, that's pretty amazing you know the field of EMS, we find things that aren't funny, funny sometimes, right? That's kind of what we do. And it's also a role that we play when we're trying to deal with emotional things that are just difficult to deal with, that we find ways to incorporate laughter. My favorite show is the fabulous Miss Maisel. I don't know if you've seen that, but it has to do with a female comedian from the fifties. And so I had all these thoughts about meeting you from watching this TV show about a comedian, but now some of them are... <laughs> Some of them are taken away. Let me. Can I ask you, just because I don't know, r remind me and the audience also, what part of the country are you in? Where are you at? So I am currently in Oklahoma City, uh, in the Oklahoma City metro area, and have been here since 2008 and have worked for several large um, EMS organizations within the state, uh, both um, Oklahoma City proper and the, um, the metro area. So I've had a a great experience learning and growing in the community here since I moved here from Colorado, which is where I started my EMS and fire-based career. Yeah, you're like the trifecta, right? Like the EMS, fire, you get it all. Let's talk about this article. The, the article that I found for us to talk about today was initially printed by the National Association of EMS Physicians, and then it was reprinted in EMS One in September of 2023, so just really recently. And the title of the article is is it safe to treat and release patients with hypoglycemia? Assessing pre-hospital management and outcomes in patients assessed for hypoglycemia. I want to share you more about the article in sort of a summary uh, format. Diabetes is a prevalent chronic condition, and this is something that it affects 11% of the U.S. population. So 11% is a big O number. And these hypoglycemia events are common occurrences especially for people that are on medicine. So these diabetic-related emergencies account for um, two and a half or so percent of all the EMS activations out there. And there's this um, standard guideline. It's the national model EMS clinical guideline that is put out there that helps set parameters so that providers can have an understanding for the level of severity that this patient um, is under. So these guidelines recommend transport to a facility if the low blood sugar continues or if the patient has had a seizure. But in those cases that are less severe, they are recommending the sort of a treat and release scenario. EMS protocols, though, in, in general for the treatment of hypoglycemia are really different from place to place. And only 49% have specific policies that regard non-transport of treated patients. And so a study uh, was conducted in Canada, in Ontario, that was aimed to look at some of the predictors of repeat access to EMS or the emergency room within 72 hours of that contact that the paramedic had. And what they did was is they went through and did a retrospective review. So they went through old uh, EMS reports and ER records for a full year. And they really kind of focused on people who had blood sugars that were under 72. And what they looked at was that patients on insulin were less likely to need repeat care regardless of the transport. And these findings were suggesting that the whole treat and release strategies that may be safe for certain patients. And as a result of that, EMS leaders might want to consider 
writing in these these strategies so that we can manage these patients differently. I want to say that I've worked in lots of EMS systems that did not have a specific protocol for treat and release. And so what happened was that these patients would get the D50, wake up, sign a refusal, and then I take the IV out of their arm and they leave, you know, and leave. And I have always had mixed feelings about those situations because, you know, this is a patient that was under my care. Nobody else saw them but me. And, you know, what happens, you know, when I'm not there? So this article is, is kind of interesting because it brings up all these different scenarios that can happen and also highlights the fact that we don't have a standard practice. So, Eric, tell me about your experience with diabetic patients. What do you think about this article? As a student and one that likes reviewing research, regardless of how many times I've run a call, I find that reading that article and then comparing it to other analysis lends itself to me to have more questions when I've dealt with patients. So I retrospectively went back and reflected on a lot of different levels of hypoglycemic patients that I've seen over 15 years and probably should have transported more than I did based upon some of the factors that I think we're gonna get into in a few minutes. What I mean to say by that is paramedics do a very good job in, in EMS understanding those neurogenic symptoms of hypoglycemia, the anxiety, the, the hyperarousal, the sweating, the palpitations, the paresthesis, the numbing, numbness and tingling, which we may even call behavioral changes, but then that kind of reflects itself into a patient that has in, having the neuroglycopenic symptoms where seizure and coma and all those other more significant issues are coming into play. And what were we witnessing upon our arrival and what was being told to us by witnesses or bystanders and making a cogent link between what the presentation was and what our treatment modality should be and should it also include transport. I said a lot of things to say this. I think in EMS, we've done a great job of getting the basic understanding of what and we often are inhibited by a patient immediately saying, I'm good, this has happened to me before, without us maybe knowing and having a little bit more evidence-based medicine and actively engaged medical directors and clinical teams to say that these are some of those factors for which we want you to really try to implore transport versus treat and release at home. Um, I've had patients ranging from profoundly obtunded to snoring respirations, to postictal, which is presumptive of seizures. Um, those patients all I have tried or enticed to go to the hospital. I never go on a call presuming that I'm going to get a refusal. And I think that's another gap where we and, and myself have jumped over the hurdles to determine whether or not that patient, their best place of action or course for us to do is get them to the hospital so they could be further evaluated. Um, and a lot of times, unfortunately, since endocrinology isn't there and it's just a hospitalist, they kind of get passed along and, and maybe monitored and evaluated. Um, but we'll get to a few things specifically, and I know I said a lot, so I'll kind of get it back to you. Well, yeah, the um, way that I've worked as a paramedic in my training is I think I've learned some of the best lessons from watching other people make mistakes. And so a lot of my pet peeves as a paramedic are really related to that. And this is an off topic, but I'll just tell you that I'm one of those seatbelt people. Like if I see another crew that's pushing a patient into the hospital with no seatbelts on, it makes me nauseous. I'm like, 
what in the world are these people? You know, I, it's a major problem, a pet peeve of mine. It's because I've seen people die. I've seen really serious things happen when you don't follow the rules. And as far as I'm concerned, being a good paramedic means that you're a good rule follower because the rules are there for a reason. And, and this is clinical stuff now. All that to say, when it comes to battling this out with patients and being concerned about people and taking on that liability, what I've done is... I have had cases where, don't tell anybody, okay? I've had patients that I put on the ambulance stretcher and I put in the back of the ambulance and I made sure the driver was was turning the wheels of the ambulance before I pushed the D50. And the situation was one of those situations where I thought that based on the way the family was talking that this is, a, this is definitely going to be a patient that tries to refuse. And clinically, he looked horrible. So, you know, yeah, I might be able to get his sugar back temporarily, but this is not a good case. And I, I'm, if memory serves me right, you know, I'm thinking about patients that look like they've had seizures or, you know, been into the low state for a long period of time. You know, this is like an ethical thing, right? So should I have waited that extra five minutes to administer that D50 while their brain was suffering you know, from it, or should I have just done it right away? I guess this all comes down to it being situational. And what we, and you and I know is that you put one paramedic in this situation and you're going to get a refusal and you get put another paramedic in the situation and you're going to get a transport. And so without there being protocols that are really specific about this, this can be come up to provider judgment. And you know, anytime it's provider judgment, we can have laziness that plays into the to the mix. I want to echo on that and, and go back to patients that we've seen and, and to your example that as paramedics, we should be very good rule followers. And I want to echo that. I didn't think about it from that perspective and, and hearing that it, it afforded me the opportunity to say, I can make very good clinical observations and judgments. And I know to the level and degree for which I study. And yet to normalize those accountability opportunities and conversations by having the rigidity of the protocols and yet being able to have conversations with physicians when we have questions to deviate from those protocols. So when we have that patient that is profoundly low, that really, really clinically looks um, unwell, my thought is that they should always be going to the hospital. Is it something that they're not doing? Is it something physiologically? Is there a combination of the above? Is it an education that needs to be done? Our first and foremost priority should be optimal care and treat and transport. I know that we're looking at opportunities for treat and release and, and treat and, and payment models. And, and yet we have to be driven in that one direction or not. We're trying to do everything all at once as opposed to still staying defined in the role of what we do, and that is treat and transport. I'm all for all the changes that we're seeing in, in enhanced education models for paramedics, which is being shot down by the other organizations. All that to be said, when we're dealing with a hypoglycemic patient that looks so unwell, and we give them that D10 or that D50, we're artificially elevating their numbers. And we do not know from an epidemiological standpoint or um, a standpoint of endocrinology, what the reason for their crisis was. And oftentimes there are other illnesses and comorbid factors that are playing 
into the factors and without labs and without urinalysis and without kidney function checks and assessments, which obviously we as paramedics can't do, um, I think we're doing a disservice to our patients. You know, if we look uh, specifically uh, up in the studying that I've been doing, if metformin, which is typically given for type two diabetics, if that, which we know inhibits hepatic gluconeogenesis, where when, when there's a physiological response and our body needs energy, our hepatic cells start creating the, the glucose to be released into the bloodstream. With that being said, if we then have a patient that's been hypoglycemic and they're on metformin, if we give them medication, D10, D50, at what level and how much response will it have to combat or compete against the receptors that the metformin, metformin is inhibiting? So are we just quickly getting them to be cogent enough to sign a refusal to then 30, 40 minutes, an hour, four or five hours later, whatever the time frame may be, to potentially have a, a greater catastrophic drop over a longer period of time, or the loved one that was there with them did not stay with them because they were fine. And then this person is obtunded, comatose, seizure, and, and potentially deceased. And, and these are the factors that I think, if we look at evidence-based medicine in these studies, even if it's 1% of patients have issues that are insulin dependent, diabetic uh, patients with hypoglycemia, the metformin, I think, is a greater consideration for us, absent even the comorbid factors with chest pain, heart disease, hyperlipidemia, COPD, CHF, and all these other things that we know um, the symptoms can mask and mirror. Yeah, because the I liver think, can only do so much, right? The, yes. the liver is just, you know, another example is that if you're a diabetic and you um, drink alcohol, then your liver can't do anything except process that alcohol. So forget your blood sugar, you know, monitoring. And, and so it's, it's, it, it's one of the concerns that, you know, we have with um, diabetics drinking, because like, even though you're taking your medicine, this is, this is so, sort of totally thrown off the, the mix. Have you got to take ANP2 yet? In your studies? Yes, yes. I took oh, those, my gosh. Uh, I finished uh, physiology last fall and anatomy I took um, two and a half years ago. So that's how you really learned about how all this is just totally wrecking the, you know, wrecking the system and how there's such a small amount of uh, action that can cause the liver not to be able to function like it needs to. And, you know, the thought I have about getting the patient to the hospital are two things. One is that I offload this responsibility that could come back on me as a provider, right? Because I made the wrong choice of getting them there. And the other thing is that my understanding is that most hospitals have a system. So even if you leave the hospital with, with a, a diabetic discharge, you get a follow-up call from a certified diabetic educator, you know, so you have something that, um, that would be there. Or also, a lot of times, the hospital notes will update the physician's notes, right? So if you have an endocrinologist or you have a personal doctor, that, that doctor is now going to find out that you're bad and you get to go to the ER. <laughs> so so there, are, there, are those, there, there are all those benefits. And that's, that's why this is sort of a, a tricky thing because it's situational. And as the provider, we are out there making a decision about are we going to leave this person or, or take them? And... Some paramedics may not have the 
full training that would allow them to look at all the signs that would prevent this. And then also the part that you mentioned, gosh, can we really trust the family member? And in medicine, we over and over have been proved wrong, that we just can't trust the family member. That's why so many physicians refuse to uh, let patients be, you know, drive to the hospital by themselves, right? Like they, (laughs) they don't trust that they're going to make it there. So we, uh, we really worry about, um, we really worry about these patients. Tell me about some of the situations you've, you've been in with, with diabetics like this. So very interesting. You know, I I go back to a patient in Colorado and we, it it was a long haul just to get there. It was about the 17 minute, very rural. I was at uh, one of the more rural stations in our department. And by the time we got there, um, in, in his blood glucose level, just read low. So depending on the monitor, that could be below 25, mm-hmm. could be below 50. Um, you know, they're, they're calibrated a little bit differently, but he was um, ashen gray. He had had significant diaphoresis. He had been incontinent to urine. Um, so to me, either so obtunded and, and cognitively uh, impaired that he did, he was incontinent or did in fact have a seizure and was incontinent. So I can't make those clinical determinations, but yet I can make best judgments in clinical hypothesis or clinical decision-making based upon what we see. And how many of us are, are seeing these things on that level and integrating ourselves? So this person, I knew that we've been out there before. And, and he always said, if he was, he was in the 30s and 40s and he was just slurring his words and just had minimal cognitive impairment uh, compared to being completely uptunded. He said, I never want to go to the hospital. I want you to come here and give me the medicine and I'll sign a refusal. And his family member wasn't there. And, and, he had a, and he had a son that was always there consistently taking care of them. And this gentleman um, had some bread in the, in the house and he had some peanut butter in the house and he had some soup in the house. And uh, he had a lot of alcohol in the house. And, and not casting any aspersions, but it's kind of going to the point. This gentleman, what, whatever's going on, emotionally, physiologically, spiritually, physically, th- there's a disconnect to his overall health and, and condition. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's masking, whatever the case may be. We got there and there was nobody there. And the first thought, and it kind of goes back to your, your reaction, do we just get him loaded because he is so sick at this point, he's going to need to be evaluated? Mm-hmm. Period, point and blank. I don't know what's gone on neurologically. I don't know if there's been a stroke co-committantly with this. You know, even if he had started seizing, we're going to treat the seizure, even risk averse to the hypoglycemia and stop the seizure because we know what that activity is going on in the brain. And I think a lot of times too, we're not learning that. Even just a seizure standpoint, stop the seizure. Don't worry about the, right. don't worry about the glucose, right? Stop the seizure, whatever your medication is and your, and your, formal areas, stop the seizure. Glucose isn't going to cure the problem if the patient's seizing. So, but this patient, excuse me for going around and around in this loop. Um, we got him loaded and he had been profoundly uh, diaphoretic. I mean, his jeans, his shirt, his sweatshirt are, are dripping, soaking wet uh, to the point where it's even difficult to get his vasculature because he was so hypotensive as well as hypoglycemic. He ended up getting an interosseous um, in, in the uh, tibia 
for which we could gain access. And at this point, we, we hadn't even started seeing the studies, because this is about 2005, 2006, where D10 is much better, particularly if there's an extravasation, uh, you know, less necrotic to the skin, less damaging to the skin if it were to get out and leak from the cells um, or leak into the cell, cell tissues. So this gentleman, he's getting D50 um, quick, fast, and in a hurry, because that's how we did it right. in 2005, 2006. And he's not budged from his basically comatose, obtunded state. So it's at this point, you know, we can give under the protocols of the time another uh, D50 or, you know, uh, 25 grams, right? So we did that. And again, zip zero, not a change. And this is a person that had told us over and over and over again, I'm going to sign a refusal. And had we went that any way, any one of us, <laughs> yeah, stepped up and said, if we come out here again after the second time or the first time, we're going to transport you and, and make an agreement, you know, honor them and yet also encourage them to be in agreement with you because make ourselves the healthcare professionals and the educators that we're supposed to be with our patients. Put ourselves in the position to be seen in that light as an educator, as a professional, and let them know maybe they don't need to know all the way down to the cellular level of glyconeogenesis, gluconeogenesis, all of those things, but they need to know that their physicians need to help them be in better control of their situation. And these catastrophic things will be happening and do we need to scare patients sometimes politely and i think lovingly with grace we need to, we need to inform them um, and, and this patient ended up having uh, uh probably about a 10-day stay because there were so other many comorbid factors that were going on that caused him to get to this position um, in the situation of, which any other time would have just been a hypoglycemic event signed sealed delivered refusal whoever was in process of, of acknowledging the refusal and, and saying, yep, just get them a signature. If there's a witness there, great. Um, so th that was one of the more difficult ones because the patient was profoundly sick, profoundly mm -hmm. sick. And that does not diminish from the patient that we would get that's in his 30s and slurring and slightly combative, um, and we're not, you know, we're, we're completely making them lucid. They're getting a sandwich. I think great. And, and then the SEMSA um, article and, and having guidelines and stuff like that, if we can get them and sustain them in an 80 milligrams per deciliter, um, if they don't have chest pain, shortness of breath, other comorbid factors and, 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 and symptoms, I think they're great guidelines for us to, to reasonably keep people at home and then yet ask them, or even while we're there, see if they'll call their endocrinologist or their family family provider if it's during the hours that they may be there. So those are a couple of the ones that we've seen. And uh, Gosh, to my chagrin, go ahead. Isn't it funny when you have a, it's sort of funny, but not funny, when you have a patient who is talking to you like they're normal and you look at them and you're thinking to yourself, Gosh, you know, you're an ICU patient right now trying to tell me you don't need to go to the hospital because sometimes that's what the deal is. You know, it's like they just don't know how bad they are or they're in denial or, you know, they're hoping that that D50 is going to get them through. You know, I, 
I've had some interesting situations too. Like the one time I got called to a roadside uh, situation where the police officer wasn't sure if the patient was drunk or if they had a blood sugar problem in this case was because this was the English as second language uh, person. And so, you know, it required to, to take a blood sugar to, to make sure. And we end up in all these kinds of wild situations because then, you know, if I have a low blood sugar patient and the police officer wants to take him to jail, now I'm in a spot to argue with the police about, you know, what's really going on. But the other thing that um, I remember was that there was a time where I was riding with another paramedic and, and he and I were precepting an EMT student. You know, we took turns doing the calls and this was his call and it was a hypoglycemic call. And the partner I had did one of those Pulp Fiction kind of things where he um, was trying to revive the patient and show off and basically told the family, you know, after I give this medicine, you will see a complete recovery, you know, almost like a magician or something. And it didn't work. And so how embarrassing is that for him? Now, not only did that not work, but the family's even more concerned and you just obviously didn't assess your patient, you know, enough to handle this correctly because, you know, we're looking at people that some, you know, I think about those providers who are the laziest and I think about those providers who are trying to get by with the minimal aspects of their job. And those are the kind of situations that scare me. And similar to that in diabetic patients, they're repeat customers. So we think, oh, it's, I see that address come across the pager. I know that person. And it's not always the same every time. I mean, and it's mind numbing. You know, we know physicians obviously are fallible. And, and yet they have access to so many um, opportunities to, to have measurables, you know, liver functions, kidney functions, you know, uh, A1Cs. And, and all those things are really to see how effectively we've taken care of that patient beyond just the getting them to be cogent. When you're talking about that paramedic, the, you know, the one that I, I hope I've never been, um, just wanting to pass the buck and, and, you know, it's three in the morning and don't want to take an hour uh, transport for mm -hmm. a patient that we've run 10 times in the last year. That, that in and of itself should be bells and whistles that there's something more going on with that person. But, you know, you say a, re a reliable adult staying with the patient is one of the factors that we should consider you know, honoring a refusal. And, and many times over and over, we hear these news stories where the paramedic or the EMT or the, the emergency medical professional was not the reliable adult. The professional was not reliable. And when we say things off the cuff rule because it's worked before, you know, we can say in, in our best judgment and our best clinical indications that we've seen, this has generally been had a positive result in the past, we're not waving our magic wands and medicine is, is, is as much an art as it is a science because each patient's physiology is gonna be completely different. And because it works with one does not mean it's gonna work with another. And, and the big thing too is just because I can doesn't mean I should. And, and just because I haven't doesn't mean I shouldn't learn. And we get in these areas of comfortability that it's so difficult to get out of our comfort field or comfort zone when I haven't done something in so long, or there used to be um, psychomotor skills, you know, apparently the NREMT is stopping psychomotor skills in within a year. I don't know how I feel about that. I've talked with some educators, full-time educators that say there's, you know, pros and cons. And at the same time, 
we've lost the interface, the empathy, the engagement from provider to patient at all levels of medicine, because now it's just seen as in many cases and too often the case, a transactional interaction versus a relational interaction. And our time frame to get good HPIs, history, histories of present illness and injury, and having a cogent, responsible witness to the event when the patient isn't or hasn't or has notoriously not been, really should be red flags for us as to whether or not we even consider refusals. We should be going with, in with the intentionality of transporting those patients and getting them to a different level of care, in this case, typically a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, um, where they can really look and examine. And I think not because it's passing the buck e either. And we've got to get over these arguments in medicine that, you know, you, you had the opportunity and they're, why'd you bring them to the hospital? They have, they're at 110 milligrams of, per deciliter now, and they're cogent and they, they're not slurring their words. Right. There's no numbness or tingling or paresthesias. They're no, no longer diaphoretic. They don't have chest pain anymore. Yes. And this is the 10th time that we've been to their house in X amount of days. And you're just the new doctor that's on your, you know, 20th hour of your 24 hour shift or the 11th hour of your 12 hour shift. And we're getting just the ramifications of that mm -hmm. because we've brought you a patient that by all accounts on the eye test, the smell test, the sniff test is okay. And, and that's where I think as paramedics, as professionals, um, I want to strive to continue to be better. And that's incorporating the whole team concept and ingratiating the nurses and the physicians and the PAs and the nurse practitioners that we have to be in this together, despite all the fights that are intrinsically going on within our own silos. Well, and um, I, I, that, that's ahead. a good opportunity. I didn't plan on talking about this, but the conversation I just want to push into is that, you know, that's one of the things that's interesting about having paramedic practitioners is that if we have a PA or a nurse practitioner or a paramedic practitioner who's on the street, then there's someone that's making judgment calls without labs, right? So it's not necessarily helping their risk at all. It's, it, it, of course, is getting more knowledge to the situation, but, you know, the the fact is, is that we don't know everything on the bus yet. And one, I, I was a paramedic supervisor for a long time. I mean, I work on a, uh, on an ambulance right now, but I just have a habit of looking at everything from a management perspective. And when I was starting an EMS years ago, we didn't even have, there were not like cameras and stuff in people's homes. And so now my worst case scenario thinking about this as a paramedic supervisor is that I have a crew who goes in to take care of a patient in the middle of the night and they may even make them a peanut butter uh, sandwich and, um, you know, give them D50. And then what happens is they die later and the cameras in the house prove in court that they talked them into a refusal or yeah. that the crew didn't do their job. And so, so many extra things are out there to make sure that you're following those rules, you know, and that's why I have that saying that to be a good paramedic, you have to be a rule follower. It's because of my background in management. I really believe that, you know, I could maybe not follow the rules in some other fields, but what this article is talking about is what are those rules? And I think that the answer is that it's saying in a lot of situations, treat and release is okay. But what you and I know from our experience is that 
for that to happen, there has to be provider judgment that's worth something and then also protocols to help back that up because otherwise I can see the courtroom now with that television playing the video of the crew member saying, no, hold, hold your pin better. Hold it like this when you, you know, not even getting good good situations. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting and, and confounding. And to your point, I want to, again, echo my feelings as a clinical manager and a field training officer and as a supervisor in law enforcement, when we don't normalize accountability conversations, when nothing is going on that is going to have an adverse consequence, and then the only time then that we have interactions with our coworkers, our subordinates, our employees is when there is a potential adverse incident or there is something that we have not done, we automatically click into that defense mode as opposed to that rational mindset where I'm here to listen. And I mean, this happens with me and my wife, let alone mm -hmm. at work. I click into defense mode mindset because automatically I feel like I have to defend myself. And in many cases, we get more defensive when we examine guilt, when we have guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And the guilt and shame is, is that we didn't follow just the simple checklist and they, they didn't meet these seven or eight criteria that are easily a checklist. And I, you know, everybody reverts back to and when you flew, you understood checklist and safety and why airlines are so safe because we have checklists. Yep. It does not, the, the risk aversion is not decreasing the education and, and the mindset that we have a checklist because we're less prepared and less educated. It is so we protect ourselves when our cognitive abilities, because we haven't eaten or we haven't slept or we have stressors and our cortisol levels are flying around and our epinephrine is flying around and we're not making the best decisions, these checklists will save us and our patients hardships and trauma and potentially significant monetary loss as well. Yeah, and I'm thinking about the new paramedic that hasn't had a lot of these patients. And one of the benefits of my time working in the ER and the ICU is that I have seen patients that eat, take their insulin, and just drop. Some of the, the word that we use is brittle. You know, some of these diabetics are really brittle. And so... Knowing that helps the provider also make a judgment call. And while we're talking about that, it's the same thing when we have overdose patients. If you've had experiences where you've given Narcan and they, they pass right back out and quit breathing again within, you know, five minutes of you giving it, you know, it's a testament to the fact that patients have to be monitored because we don't have just uh, quick fixes like we wish we had. You know, like Narcan and D50 don't do everything. 100% agree. <laughs> and... You know, when I when I got into the fire service uh, in, in EMS and the fire department in Colorado uh, sent me to paramedic school, um, and, th and that was when there was this big push for paramedicine, uh, and we had this kind of urban uh, or, or suburban rural kind of interface, and, you know, th there there is a need, I believe, truly for paramedics and, and paramedicine in the place of a physician, which I think if we go back to that mindset, you know, we have victims and we bring to the hospital a patient. Um, you know, the mindset of in the place of a physician and we have devolved to the level of, uh, here's a program, you pass the test. Here's the program, you pass the test. And our education system, unfortunately, and, and I don't wanna devolve or digress too, too significantly off, off the topic, but we have a significant issue when we're not following evidence-based medicine, 
when we're not even sharing with our, our subordinates, our employees, our clinical teams, these articles, it's just, if we just had nobody saying you can't use it, it's not theft if you're taking the same seven or eight things here. And if the checklist fits, you don't transport. If any of them don't meet the measurable, you transport, or you at least do your darndest to get the patient to go uh, with you in case there's an adverse incident. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, the opportunities for us to be better practitioners and providers and, and paramedics do treat and we do diagnose. And, and this whole argument that still goes on, if you watch or follow any of the social media platforms where people still will to this day say we make a clinical judgment and then treat based upon that. I can accept that that's their, their feelings and I obviously also don't have to agree with that. I am gonna ingratiate the creativity and the continuation and the collaboration of the conversation. And by continuing to share things like this, in this article about hypoglycemia has taken us to the areas that really, if we were to shine our light into, play a bigger role than us just not even following potentially a simple checklist, an appropriate checklist to determine whether we do a refusal or not on a patient. And we are so woefully disengaged. Um, we're fighting for money. We're fighting the IFF against the so-and-so and the third service versus the private and the not-for-profit versus the hospital-based. Essential doesn't mean essential in every state and municipality is the same. And so everybody's worried about money and everybody's worried about position and everybody's worried about all these things. And if we took care of ourselves and we took care of those that were enlisted to be professional for, I think we could do a paradigm shift just in that. And, and the other thing, and we talked about research, who does the research for, for paramedicine? Nurses and physicians. And, and without physician oversight, we could never have a job. So I'm not dis discrediting and dismissing that but it's every other profession is doing research for paramedics short of several, if, if you look at Europe, or yes, Europe, excuse me, in Australia in particular, uh, I think it's Manasset. Um, Monash University. Man yeah, yeah, where they're doing doctorates mm -hmm. in, in paramedicine, doctorate levels, master's levels, uh, paramedic level practitioners. And you hear people in different positions across EMS that, that, that have, you know, said, we want to have you be paramedic practitioners and we want to do this. And we want to increase the education. Well, the big two or the big three told us a few weeks ago that they don't want that because there's a shortage in paramedics. Yeah. And I understand both sides, but yeah, one of the purposes of this show and, and what I'm up to is I'm trying to fill some of that gap here in the United States. I know that, um, you know, the reason that I got my PhD in human development is because I couldn't get a PhD in paramedicine. So I was lucky enough to find a school that would let me write and research whatever I wanted to, which was all paramedic stuff. But you know, those opportunities aren't, um, aren't so big out there. And so when we talk about the research arm, it's different than the clinical arm, but yeah, I, I think it's awesome how we're, we are making some progress. When I started looking over the material and started doing a, a deeper dive into some of the, uh, 
the other research, it reminded me of why I love paramedicine and the opportunities that we have to take care of a human for them in potentially the worst uh, circumstance of mm-hmm. their life. And, and at the very least, uh, to show people that we do have an education and a training and a mindset to deliver and make good on our promise to do the best for another human being, regardless of race, creed, gender orientation, um, and et cetera. And I think this opportunity continues to embolden me to be stronger, to speak out when one of us is not doing that, to hold one another accountable without casting aspersions to lift us up as opposed to tear us down. And the opportunities that I've listened to you um, today and and other opportunities that I've had to to hear you, it's about driving knowledge, driving skill, and driving collaboration so that we can empower ourselves and better the profession. And to have the opportunity to be here has been fantastic. So I just want to say thank you, and and hopefully I didn't disappoint. Oh, my gosh. um, So the the last paragraph of whatever you just said sounded so professional and polished and wonderful and th- but you know thank you for that and th- that's what that's what we're up to, to doing here and so thinking about the human factors and thinking a- about um, the best way to make our field better is um, it's all it's all about this so thank you for being here that was wonderful i appreciate you very much i also want to invite you to check out my latest book i co-authored the book with four arrows who is two doctorates and is also an expert on indigenous scholarship and hypnosis So I just want to invite you to check it out because we introduce a method for communicating with patients on the scene of the emergency that takes advantage of some of those properties found in hypnosis. This book works to change the way we approach and interact with the emergency patient, especially the emergency patient that's in acute kind of distress. And my goal with the book is to help make you be a better practitioner. So the book is called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. You can follow the link below to find it or go almost anywhere where you can find books online to buy. If you want me to autograph your book, I'd be more than happy to. It's just easier for me to mail you an autograph sticker than it is for you to mail me your book because I already got a couple of those in the mail from friends. So don't mail me your book. Just let me know and I'll send you an autograph sticker that you can put inside uh, inside your book. So I hope you get a chance to check it out. The other thing to share is I'm doing a research project related to first responders who live in the United States. And I could use your help if you don't mind being interviewed over a video call. Take about an hour. So go to my website and fill out a form, professorbram.com. So it's professorbram.com. Hi, I'm Will Chaplow from the International Pre-Hospital Medicine Institute. You might know about us because of the literature reviews that we post every month free to, for your review on our website at iphmi.com and also published through Gems Online Magazine every month. We've been doing them for five years. So now we've accumulated over 240 literature reviews over the past five years. And we've gotten feedback from our audience that said they'd like to have these things as desk references, so they'd had a rapid reference. Well, we've done it. And there are now five volumes of these books, one for each year that we've been publishing them. Uh, This is the latest version, uh, volume five. And as I said, in each of these, there's at least 48 literature reviews. They're all cataloged in the beginning of the book, so you can see um, what the topic area is, what pages those reviews are on, and how you can find them quickly. Again, these are a great reference whether you're putting a lecture together, uh, working on a paper, uh, 
studying, whatever it is, this gives you the depth of field of the science that dictates what we do in the field or what we should be doing in the field or why we've changed the way we do things in the field. In any event, as with all of our publications, we've priced these because we want you to be able to have this book. It's only $4.99 in the written, in the copy, the hard copy here. And they're all five of them are available at that price. But you can also get them as ebooks. And they're available as ebooks from Amazon, from uh, Apple, from Barnes and Noble, wherever you get, you get your ebooks for the price of $2.99. So again, we don't do this um, with an aim towards getting wealthy. We do these because we want you guys to be able to have these materials relevant information, affordable information, and an access so you can get to it. So you want the hard copies? Go on Amazon, $4.99. Go to your ebook store and you get it for $2.99. If you're in the business. This is the kind of material you want to have around to settle those firehouse arguments or to help you put your materials together. Thanks again. See you all soon. Thank you again for listening. And I look forward to sharing more insights with you in this next episode. So if you enjoy the EMS research, please tell your friends and like, share, and subscribe to help others get the message and hang on for the credits at the end. Thanks. Thanks.